Uh, Father, as we try to wrap up a very quick discussion of Galatians this week, we pray that you would help us to understand the heart of Paul's message and that you would give us a deeper understanding of the gospel as we study this book. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, yesterday we talked about Galatians starting off. Um, what, is the, what is the heresy that, uh, that Paul is facing? What do we call it? The Judaizer. Um, and what do the Judaizers teach? Huh? Yeah, you got to become Jewish to be saved. So the the Judaizers, um, if you're a Gentile and you want to be in relationship with the Jewish Messiah Jesus, they say you first have to become a Jew, and then you can get to Jesus, and that's going to entail doing the works of the law, which include things like circumcision kosher, holy days. Paul's gospel that he proclaimed to the church in Galatia, uh, remember Galatia is a region, yes, Galatia is a region with a lot of churches in it, Um, the main church that Paul associated himself with was the church in Antioch, which is actually the church that kind of sent him on his missionary travels. But Paul's gospel that he first brought to Galatia circumvented all of this. Paul's gospel said, if you're a Gentile and you want to get in relationship with Jesus, you simply have to have faith. faith. And faith brings about your justification. That is how you become righteous. You're counted righteous by your faith. And if you are righteous, then you are right with God. So if you want to be right with God, if you want to be in relationship with Christ, you don't do all the works of the law. Instead, you have faith. This is what Paul had taught them. But as he is on his missionary journey, he has heard that there have been people who have started to trouble the churches in Galatia by teaching this, what Paul labels another gospel. And then he says, not that there really is another gospel, because this isn't really good news. Um, but he begins trying to defend his authority and his ministry. And he does that by mentioning how on two separate occasions he met with the apostles in Jerusalem and they gave him validation that his teaching was right and that it was in accordance with the rest of the apostles. So he mentions those two episodes. These Judaizers claim to come from the apostle which James. And Paul says, no, I've met with James twice. We're on the same page. And so these people have not really come from James. But then Paul says, even if they did, I'm an apostle not from men. I'm an apostle through Jesus Christ. Um, And so he says, I have authority, and it doesn't come from Peter. And it doesn't come from James or from any of these others. It comes from God. And um, he mentions an episode... Sorry. Um, he says, even, uh, even if James and, and these people really were sent from James, Paul said, you know, I have my authority not from James and not from Peter and not from John. I have it from God. And he talks about this episode where in the church at Antioch, he had a confrontation with one of the other apostles. Which one was it? 
Peter. Peter was eating with Gentiles. But then there were people who came from Jerusalem, uh, Jewish Christians who came from Jerusalem, and Peter, out of fear from them, stopped eating with the Gentiles and started eating with only the Jews. And what did Paul do? He called him out. Publicly and to Peter's face, Paul said, you are wrong and you need to repent. Which we get the idea that Peter did because we have two books of the Bible later written by Peter. And in these two books by Peter, Paul, or Peter at length talks about um, how Jews and Gentiles are brought together as one body, one people. And we also have at the very end of Second Peter, um, Peter says something very interesting. He, um, we'll, we'll see this later in the semester. But at the end of Second Peter, Peter says um, to the churches this. I'll, I'll just read it. Pay really careful attention to this. Listen to what Peter says. He says in 2 Peter 3, um, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in Paul that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scripture. You have these letters from Paul. Pay really close attention to them. Sometimes Paul says things that are confusing, and there are people who twist Paul's statements to their own destruction just like they do the other scriptures. The other scriptures. Other scriptures there probably refers to what? What would be the Bible for Paul and Peter? The Old Testament. But then he says there are people that twist Paul's words just like they twist the words of the other scriptures. What is Peter saying about Paul's writings right there? Not just similar, but it's, it's as much scripture as the Old Testament is. So we get the idea that Peter, um, whenever Paul opposed him, Peter didn't say, I'm more authoritative than you, shut up, Paul, or anything like that. Instead, he recognized that Paul has authority from God, that he is uh, this divinely inspired individual. And so Peter repents when Paul calls him out. Peter and James and John are not infallible. And so Paul says that the church in Galatia, even if they're being troubled by people claiming to come from them, he says they're not really from them. But even if they were, you should still listen to me as I preach the gospel to you. Um, We looked at the first half of Galatians 3 yesterday, and Paul talked about how uh, whenever he first came to Galatia, he preached this gospel of salvation by faith and how this led to blessing for the Christians who heard and received it. They received the Holy Spirit. They received the promises of God. And he asks, if you started by the Spirit, will you now be perfected by the flesh? If you began by faith, will you now be completed by works? And the implied answer to those questions, of course, is no. Um, He then goes on and he uses a certain Old Testament figure as an example that justification was by faith in the Old Testament. Who does he use? Abraham Abraham again. Uh, Really similar to his Romans argument. He then, where we left off yesterday, was in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, where Paul made 
this case. He said, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So to receive blessing through the law, how many of the laws do you have to do? All of them. And if you don't do all the laws, you're under a curse. So Paul says, basically, okay, you can't separate the law. You can't say, well, I was circumcised, I did kosher, I, 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 did, I did these things, so I fulfilled the law and I'm righteous. He says, no, the law is one thing that you have to take together. If you break it in one part, you break the whole of it. And so if you are trying to stand before God on the basis of your own righteousness, on the basis of your works, then you are under a curse. He continues and says, it's evident then that no one is justified by God, by the law, because the righteous shall live by faith. If you want to stand before God as a righteous person who's right with God, you better come to him through faith, not through works. The law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And the good news is that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So today we need to talk about Abraham, we need to talk about identity as Christians, we need to talk about angels. So, open to Galatians 3. General is Galatians. General. What comes next? Electric. What is electric? Ephesians. Ephesians. All right. General electric. Power. What is power? Philippians. General electric power. Company. What is Colossians? There you go. So if I don't teach you anything else this semester, you will learn that, except for maybe you two keep yelling Genesis and Exodus. So, do you guys do you guys know the books of the Bible in order? Did you have to learn this whenever you were a child? Wait, can you like maybe perform that at some point? Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe that's something that we'll need to do at some point is I'll play like the little kids music and you'll have to memorize all the books of the Bible. That is order. how I learned the new I mean, it, yeah, it really is. Um, Mackenzie's family did this really weird one. Um, and yeah, I don't like it very much, but I may play it for you. So, all right. So um, Galatians. The prophets and I'm just all messed up. The prophets. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're tough. Um, I, I think that a lot of people feel that way. It's kind of hard to remember those even with a little bit of a jingle. Please stop putting things in on or 
mirror. Or, um, all right, Galatians 3, let's start in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Okay? So covenant is basically a promise with legal stipulations, right? So I've used the example before. If I said, hey, if you make 100 on your test, I'll give you $100, and then I don't do it, you can't sue me for it. But if, I, if we win and we... I put it in writing, if you make 100 on your test, I'll give you 100 bucks, and we went and got it stamped by a notary, and then I didn't pay up, you could sue me, right? So this would be a man-made covenant, for lack of a better word. And he says, to give a human example, no one makes one of those and then annuls it. What does it mean to annul? Ignore it or say it doesn't work anymore. No one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Once you sign your name on it and you get the stamp, can you change it? No. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but instead referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is a very, very, very interesting point that Paul is making. Um, in English, if I said you and your offspring, that would be a way of saying you and your children. 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 All right. Notice that, um, you know, we have words in English like deer or fish that can be singular or plural. And offspring would be like that. Right. Um, I could talk about one child and I could say that is your offspring. Or I could talk about all your children and could say that is your offspring. That's how that word works in English. It can either be singular or plural, like deer or fish. In Hebrew, it doesn't work that way. Hebrew endings change based on how many of something there is. They have singular, they have plural, they also have something called dual, which means two. And so what Paul is picking up here is that whenever God made promises to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis, he said something really interesting. He said, this promise is for you, and your offspring. And it's hard for us to see it in English because offspring, the way that we use it, it can either be singular or plural. But Paul picks up on the fact that God spoke and chose to use a singular in Hebrew. Does that make sense? So like, for example, the word fish in Hebrew, in English, does anyone actually say fishes? Okay, I do too, but no one really does, right? Um, fish and deer, if I said look at the deer, you would have to look before you figured out did I mean one deer or like 16 deer, right? You, no one says deers, no one really says fishes, okay? So in the same way, if you took those words though and you put them in the Hebrew language, there would be a difference between one deer and many deer, or one fish and many fish. What you do is you add an I-M ending to the word, and this makes it plural, okay? So, um, whereas our language has a little bit of unclarity to it, do I mean one or do I mean many with those words, Hebrew doesn't have any unclarity whatsoever. If it has an I-M, it's plural. And what Paul picks up on is in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, whenever God is making his promise to Abraham, the word offspring doesn't have this I-M ending. 
it's singular. And Paul is going to make a very significant point based on that. He says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring. And he says, and the one offspring of Abraham is Christ. Paul keeps going. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after Abraham, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So here is the logic of Paul's argument in this paragraph. Genesis 12 through 17. God is making promises to Abraham and to Abraham's what? Offspring. Offspring. Part of the promise, the part of the promise that Paul is really focusing on here is that there would be blessing. Or what are the things that God promises Abraham? Blessing. Um, he'll, I'll bless you and I'll bless. Oh, you guys remember this from last year? Yeah, he says, he says to Abraham, I'll bless you and all the nations through you. So um, God's going to do something through Abraham's family and um, through what he does through Abraham's family. It's going to bring benefit to the entire world. Bless you and all the nations through you. Um, we would also have the blessing of justification, being right with God. This is something that he promised Abraham. Um, you know, things like that. Um, Paul says God made a covenant with Abraham at that point. He made promises at that point. And in human relationships, whenever you make an agreement with somebody and you guys shake hands on it, you, you spit and shake or you write it down or whatever, right? Um, you guys ever done the spit shake thing? It's very unsanitary. Don't do it. Um, so uh, especially post-COVID world, we need to stop that. It's a good time to stop it, right? Paul says... Okay, in these relationships that you make with other human beings, once you shake on it or once you sign on it, sign on the dotted line, do you go back and alter anything about the agreement after that point? It's set in stone. You don't change it. So then Paul says 430 years after this, you get the law. Does the law affect any of these promises that God made? Is this an added portion to this covenant God's already made? What's Paul's answer? Can you alter a covenant once it's made? No. So this is a totally separate thing. And so the promises that God gave to Abraham were things that centered on Abraham's faith. So, can they now start centering on the law? No. That would be changing the entire agreement that he made up here. And Paul says, that's not how things work. In verse 19, he says, then why was the law given? He says, it was added because of transgression. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. An intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. 
So what Paul now argues is that all of the, all of the promises that God made to Abraham were eventually going to be given to Abraham's what? His offspring. All right. All of these promises were eventually going to be given to Abraham's singular offspring, who he, uh, Paul says is who? Jesus Christ. Good. All right. So Paul asked the question, why then the law? He says the law came in because the people of God were committing transgressions over and over and over again. So God gave a law and part of the purpose of the law was to restrain evil until this promised one came. He keeps going in verse 21 and says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul is making a really interesting point here. Um, he's using language of, of like inheritance or um, some translations will do it as a schoolmaster. All right. Um, all right. Right now, who's your schoolmaster? Okay, Mr. Wrench. Okay. Um, do you need a schoolmaster always and forever? Why do you have a schoolmaster right now? Because you're, did you say stupid? Oh, stupid. I heard stupid. Okay, we're students. Um, students need to do what? Okay, we need to learn, which is going to include studying, not disrupting class, good behavior, good attendance. Are we always good at studying, good attendance, not disrupting class, all of those things? No. No. Because we are young people, and sometimes we are immature. So, until we arrive at a place of maturity, it's good for us to have Mr. Wrenches in our life, who can keep us accountable, who can discipline us, who can guide us on the right path, right? What Paul is saying is that the reason the law was given was to basically act as a Mr. Wrench to the people of Israel. It was supposed to be a guide that that curbed their transgressions. It taught them about holiness. It restrained evil, and it acted as a guardian until the promise was fulfilled. He says in verse 25, But now that faith has come, we no longer are under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what Paul is saying here is that all of the promises that we look back at in the Old Testament that God made to Abraham, All of them were received by Abraham because Abraham had what? Faith. Faith. 
And because Abraham had faith, God said, the promises are for you, Abraham, and they're also for your singular what? Offspring. And that singular offspring is Jesus. So, now that that offspring has come, Jesus has come, all of those who are in Christ receive all of the promises made to Abraham and made to Jesus. Jesus. All of those promises were made to Abraham and to his singular offspring, Jesus. And now, if you are in Christ, all of those blessings become yours. You were counted as Abraham's offspring because you were in Christ. Okay? It's, it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like you belong to Jesus, you belong to his household, therefore you belong to Abraham's. You're the true spiritual Israel. You're the true children of Abraham. And so all of the things that God promised to Abraham, I'll be God to you and to your children after you, justification, blessing, all of these things are now yours because you are in relationship and union with Abraham's singular offspring, Jesus. Okay? Does that make sense? Tracking with that? Is that a weird argument to you? What is confusing about this argument to you? And if, if there's nothing that I would think that maybe you didn't pay close enough attention, it's a little strange. What's confusing about it? Well, we're all counted as children of Abraham, but we aren't his offspring. Okay, yeah. Um, we're counted as his spiritual children because we have faith, even though we're not his physical children. What, what else? I guess kind of the, there's one offspring, but at the end it's if you're a Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring as well. That's because you're joined to the one That's offspring, Jesus, though, right? So like the whole head body thing or the marriage thing, you're one flesh with him. Um, so you just become... When God has son-in-laws. So... Um, I guess for the bride, son's we're sons in the son is how Paul is trying to explain that, right? Because um, you, have, you have union with him. So the marriage thing is one analogy for that, but head body is also an analogy, right? So, um, yeah, he's, uh, he's saying here, um, remember that we've said this idea that you have oneness with Jesus is really the central idea in Paul. And so he is using that idea here to say, um, you have oneness with Jesus, with the one offspring of Abraham. So if you are a little Christ, if you are un- have union with him, then you, you are part of that one offspring, offspring, right? Um, what else is a little bit odd about it? He also says that his seed will bless the nations through him, but does that include the nations that are unbelievers or the nations, well, the nations that are believers, of course, like Israel? But what about nations that don't necessarily believe in Christ? Because he says that he will bless them well, I think I think what's happening there is that idea um, that Abraham's family will bring blessing to many nations. Christ dies, and he purchases salvation for Jews and Gentiles alike. So people from all these nations are experiencing blessing through Christ. And now that believers have been joined to Christ and are part of this, one of the jobs of the church is to take the blessing of the gospel to the nations. 
like, like a Matthew 28, where we're commissioned to make disciples of all nations. So this is something that Christ has already done. He's brought blessing to the nations, but it's still an ongoing reality as the church ministers, right? So it's kind of that already not yet type thing, which is something else that we see is very central to Paul. Um, that's playing really big role in this argument as well. And um, you remember that he says, um, like, in Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed. Abraham will be the father of many nations. Like, the fact that we're Americans, but we're being counted as Abraham's children. He's the father of us American Christians, um, is a partial fulfillment of that promise right there, right? I think it's weird... I don't, I don't think that Paul's argument is wrong. I, I think it works. But the first time I read it, the thing that struck out to kind of, kind of struck me. In Romans 9, it talks about, um, it, it, it talks about um, Abraham's offspring of the flesh and of the promise. And in Romans 9, his offspring of the flesh was who? Who in particular? Ishmael. And the child, the offspring of the promise was Isaac. And now Paul's coming here in Romans 3, and he, or in Galatians 3, and he's saying whenever it was said to you and to your offspring, it was singular and it was talking of Christ. But it was also talking about Isaac. And it was also talking about Israel. Um. One of the things that I think we're supposed to glean from this is that there are many, many times in Scripture where this happens. God makes a statement about the future, and then in the pretty immediate present, he gives a partial fulfillment. But the final fulfillment is still on down the road. Really good example of this. 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promises David, you will have a son who will have an everlasting kingdom. He will build a temple and I will be like a father and he will be like a son to me. Who is that ultimately about? It's ultimately about Jesus who has an everlasting kingdom, builds a temple by sending the spirit into us and is the true son of God. Um, not just a couple chapters later in the Bible, though, David has a physical son whose name is Solomon. Solomon is renamed. His name originally was Jehoiada, the beloved of the Lord. You know what title Solomon goes by at times? Or what God calls him at times? God uses sonship language for Solomon. He does for all the kings, but for Solomon in particular. And what does Solomon very famously do? Build the temple. Build the temple. So we have these promises given to David, which we can see were ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But there was kind of this partial, immediate fulfillment in Solomon. And I think that the same thing happens with like the promise to Abraham, where ultimately the promises of Abraham find their completion and fulfillment in Jesus, 
But in the more immediate present, they find fulfillment in a figure like Isaac. Or this promise that Abraham's family will bring blessing to the world. It looks like they're doing that at the end of Genesis through which figure? In Egypt? Joseph. Joseph brings kind of a temporal blessing to the world. Now, the the promise is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, but it kind of has this temporal partial fulfillment immediately after it's given. And so I think that we have to... I think that we have to recognize that sometimes whenever we read the Bible, we could say that there's kind of layers of meaning. Okay? There's the ultimate layer of meaning where these promises are pointing us to Jesus. But then there's more of a temporal layer of meaning. There's another example of this, by the way, where um, you, you know in the Bible that the word virgin can sometimes mean young lady. Okay? So sometimes it means someone who's never had sex. There's also a couple of usages in Proverbs where it's talking about two people who are obviously married, but they're newlyweds, and it still uses the word virgin for her, even though she's already had sex. So there's this, there's this really interesting thing that happens in Isaiah where um, uh, King Ahaz is scared of the Assyrians, and the prophet Isaiah goes to him and says, ask the Lord for a sign that you will be okay. And Ahaz says, I'm not willing to do it. And Isaiah says, you should have because God just told you to. So here's the sign God will give you. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. Isaiah goes home. He has relations with his wife. About nine months later, he goes back to Ahaz carrying his baby. And he says, (laughs) ta-da! Okay? The virgin will conceive and bear a son. The New Testament interprets that as a prophecy about who? Jesus. Matthew chapter 1. Okay? So, ultimately, Isaiah's prophecy was pointing us to Jesus. Immediately for Ahaz, though, he shows up with the little baby, and Ahaz says, okay. Makes sense. All right? Young woman versus virgin. There's a play on words that's happening there. So that's another example of sometimes kind of this immediate, partial, temporal fulfillment being followed by the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And so whenever we're reading um, in Paul, especially, Paul picks up on that quite a lot. He's going to play with ideas like that with some frequency. And if we are going to responsibly read Paul, we need to recognize that this is something Paul sees in the text and is willing to deal with and work with. And again, what determines meaning? What is the word that starts with C that determines meaning? Context. Context. Okay. Depending on the context that Paul is writing in, we might find him dealing with the temporal partial fulfillment. We might find him dealing with how it points to Christ. And we have to read him in context to try to distinguish um, what exactly he's, he's working with here. Okay. Um, you guys read chapters four through six last night, correct? What stood out to you from four through six? You know what always stands out to me from four through six? 
chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. If I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Hmm? Um, so, circumcision deals with a specific bit of the body, right? You guys are aware of what circumcision is by this point. Paul is basically saying, if they're going to remove that, I wish they would remove all of it. So that they wouldn't be able to procreate and there would be no more people who say such silly, silly things. That's what emasculate means. (laughs) I I wish that if you were going to do that, your knife, your flint knife would slip and it will... Um, so, I just, I just, I always read that and get kind of tickled. Like, um, that's funny, isn't it? I mean, oh, Paul is very passive aggressive at times. Like he just, uh, no, that's not passive aggressive, Gray. That's just aggressive. Yeah. Did you learn some new swear words from sailors? Like, it's not a swear saying? word. No, it's not. It's not. Yeah. It's really weird. It's colorful. It is colorful. And, um, you know, one of, um, one of the things that we see in 4 through 6, especially 5 and 6, is that Paul is adamant that teaching justification by faith does not mean that works are meaningless. Um, throughout this, it's an ethical writing. He, he talks about how faith should work through love. And true faith will always produce fruits of love. Uh, on, on top of that, true faith leads you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there are fruits of the flesh, and there are fruits of the Spirit. And if you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to walk in accordance with the Spirit. And so Paul's teaching that salvation is by faith and not by works, he he doesn't want this to be misunderstood as you just have a license to sin or do whatever you want. Um, Instead, he expects them to love their neighbors as themselves and walk according to the Spirit. Um, He also uses some other circumcision language at the very end of the letter, which is kind of interesting. Um, in verse in chapter six eleven, um, he says, "See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand," which is basically Paul's way of saying, "I wrote this letter in caps uh, caps lock, right?" Um, like uh, materials for writing are pretty expensive in the ancient world, but Paul is not like trying to do minuscule handwriting uh, so that in order to save paper or something, this guy is writing, "See with." What? This is angry writing, you know, Um, which means that whenever you read Galatians in your head, you shouldn't read this in the same calm tone that you read Romans. You should read it as a very impassioned letter. You should read it like like he's yelling at them, right? you've, You've seen videos of pastors in the pulpit before that, you know, they're getting sweaty up there because of how hard they're preaching. This is Paul in Galatians, right? He's ticked off. This is one of the only letters where he does not open by saying, 
um, to the saints in so-and-so. Instead, he does open with, um, you know, grace to you and peace. And he, um, but then he very quickly is, I'm, I'm so astonished that you're quickly deserting the gospel. He's not calling them saints. He's calling them people who are deserting the gospel, apostates. So um, this, is a, this is a very unique letter tone-wise for Paul. But um, picking up in 6.12, he says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So again, he thinks the Judaizer heresy, one of the marks that it is not true, is that it can lead to boasting. Look at the marks that are on my body. Look at how godly I am because I underwent circumcision. Paul says, true Christianity will not allow you to boast like that. Has that been a pretty consistent theme in his letter? Christianity leads to humility. Verse 15, he says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but instead a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body not the marks of circumcision, but the marks of Jesus. What would Paul mean there? I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What is he talking about there? Think about 2 Corinthians. Sort of tribulations he's faced, because I remember him mentioning getting, like, uh, yeah, scars, bruises, broken bones, who knows what else, right? Um, Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble questioning, you know, my sincerity, my apostolic authority, because I don't bear just the marks of circumcision, but I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So a very interesting way to kind of, um, kind of steal that language from them, right? Some of these... Some of these Judaizers would say, you want to know that I'm sold out for the gospel? I have the marks of circumcision on my body. And Paul says, you want to know that I'm sold out for the gospel? I have the marks of Jesus on mine. Yeah? I have a really weird question. Okay. Okay. So, you know, Catholics believe, I remember just hearing this like in passing somewhere, mm-hmm. that you can have whatever the... Oh, stigmata? Yeah. Is that the verse that they get that idea from? No, the, the stigmata is something... Um, yeah, so, so some... Um, well, actually, Roman Catholics teach that there have been certain saints throughout... Um, and actually, some people... Very interestingly, I've had to look at this. Let me think about it. Okay. It's about to go in like four different directions. The stigmata... Um, that is a word that is used to talk about the five wounds of Jesus on the cross. Um, two through the hand, two through the feet, one in the side. And um, the Roman Catholic Church has said that there's been instances where there have been people who have had like a mystical experience to the extent that um, they have either visibly 
started to show those marks on their body. Or a lot of times it's just a psychological thing, whereas they've been meditating on the cross, they start to feel intense pain in those five areas, even though physically nothing has happened to them. Um, I don't really think um, that it was like meditation on this verse that really gave rise to that. Instead, what happened is Francis of Azizi. Um, in, in uh, 1224, two years before his death, um, claimed he, he retreated to a, to a mountain. He claimed to have a mystical experience where Jesus, disguised as a seraph, basically shot laser beams at him, and then he had the wounds. And early accounts will even talk about how like some of his followers, as they were changing bandages, could feel a nail. Um, and then later on, biographers who are writing about Francis's stigmata will take this verse and will say he began to have the marks of Christ just in a very literal sense. But it's not really like meditation on this that gave rise to that phenomenon. It was more like, oh, that happened, so now we're going to talk about it this way. What's really interesting is um, some of the psychological stigmatas um, have actually been from unbelievers who have gone to church and have... Um, felt very moved by it, even though they didn't really come to faith, but felt like they were starting to have that. So it's a really interesting psychological phenomenon. Um, and um, the story of Francis is very, very odd to try to like figure out exactly what happened there because the accounts were pretty consistent about it. Um, but we won't really spend a lot of time on that. Although if you ever had me for church history, I would because I have a lot of opinions and a lot of thoughts. So, um, and I just like Francis. So tonight, um, read Ephesians... One through three. 